and um, we need, need to get started. Um, this, is, this is week two. We're talking about church growth, and trouble begins pretty quickly in church history. Hang on. Don't, 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 don't pass those out yet, please. Oh, there. Well, that's last week. Okay. There's one for you and one for Tommy. Okay, so <clears throat> uh, so we had last week the church beginning and uh, the annou- announcement from from Sunday about Polycarp. If all of, all of you were there, for those of you that weren't there, I'll just quickly go through through this. It's 156 A.D. Polycarp is in Smyrna. He's the bishop of Smyrna. All right, everybody, where's Smyrna? Today's Turkey, right? Okay. It's one of the cities that what? Right. One of the seven churches that Jesus told John to write to. Okay. Polycarp. Whoops. uh, Let me back up. Polycarp is the bishop of Smyrna. He is 86 years old, which is practically unheard of to be living that long at that point in history. Church history tradition says that he was personally in his young years a disciple of John the Apostle. So this is how close we are to Jesus himself. All right. So uh, Polycarp is, is bishop. There is a local uprising against the Christians. This is not empire-wide. This is in the Smyrna city area. If you read about what Jesus says to the church at Smyrna, he does not condemn or criticize that church. Okay? He says that your suffering is going to last 10 days. Now, what that means is that it's going to be a relatively short time, but while it's there, it's going to be intense. The local authorities are upset with these Christians. They're atheists. They're undermining the empire. This is not a good thing. Polycarp is well-known speaker, leader of the church. If we get the head, we can eradicate this pesty Christians. Polycarp, unlike many at that particular time, was not really enthusiastic about being a martyr. Okay. Smile, everybody. Okay. So he, he isn't particularly interested in it, but he is not going to run or deny his Lord by his behavior. But some friends convince him to take him out of town and we're going to hide him in a hayloft in a barn. Now, don't think of a huge barn like we think of today. Probably was very small, loose hay, not 500-pound round bales, okay, that we see out on the field. But while they're doing this, a young boy sees that they're putting Polycarp in this barn. He trots off to the authorities and tells them what's happened. A contingent of soldiers come, they arrest Polycarp, drag him before the magistrates and the civil authorities, and they say, are you a Christian, knowing full well that he is? Deny Jesus. If you don't, we're going to kill you. He says, and this is recorded, he says, The Lord Jesus has been good to me for 86 years. I cannot deny my Lord. They said, do you realize we're going to burn you? And he said, yes, because they were gathering the wood. And he said, yes, I recognize that. But in paraphrase, he said, this fire is temporary. For those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus, the fires of eternal hell await. They gave him another chance to repent. He didn't. They bound him. They tied him to a stake. And they burned him. 
Now, that's part of our family history. Church history is our family, and if there's anything I would really like for us to gain a new grasp of, a new appreciation, these are people that have gone before us. Some of them were terrible sinners, and others had slightly skewed doctrines. Some, like Polycarp, were valiant. And it's some, it, if, if you want to just read thrilling good stuff, just read some history. Okay? Questions? All right. Keep pressing on. Um, I was going to I was going to show this DVD of of uh, church history, but I looked at it again tonight when I got here, and I think there's probably more good stuff to talk about than what the small section that I was going to have for you in here. This is out of our church library. Ron has other uh, videos of parts of church history, including a. Uh, uh, a, a survey of all of it, and I really recommend take time to uh, check some of those things out if you if you'd like to. Uh, we're going to plunge on uh, for for this evening. We're going to start in kind of a strange place at first. We're going to talk about Satan's schemes, okay? And we'll get there, and then. We're going to talk about some more about persecution on the outside, and then theological heresies begin on the on the inside. Uh, I don't think we're going to get to point four tonight, but we'll we'll see. Um, it's important to understand again church history, our brothers and sisters, and people that someday we're going to meet and talk with. Um, let's take a look now. Beginning of the church, probably around 30, 34 A.D. In Acts chapter 2, you have Peter speaking in Jerusalem at, at Pentecost. And let's take a look here. He mentions all these funny names. Some of these are familiar. Some are not. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, Cretans, Rome, and Arabians. Some of those names are in the news today. Everybody talking about Benghazi and Libya. Okay. All right, here we go, and a map. Now... For those of you that may be geography challenged, we're going to have a quick review here, really quick on some important stuff. All right, over here is Gaul, which is today France, okay? Lyon, we're going to talk about that in a, in a little bit. And down here is what country? Spain. Spain, all right, good. And down here, Africa, North Africa. Here's Egypt. Libya is right right in here. Keep coming on around. Here's Carthage. And okay, other others here's Alexandria built by Alexander the Great, named named after him. We come across, we're going up here on the uh western uh east western part of Israel. You have Caesarea, Jerusalem. Keep on coming up here, you get to Antioch. What do you remember about Antioch? Yes, good for you, Barbara. And Antioch was where believers were first called Christians, okay? Christ ones. Before that, what were believers known as? The way. Followers of the way. That's exactly right. Okay, so we keep coming on, coming on around. Here we have Tarsus. We'll come back to that in a minute. You have Patmos, where John was exiled on this island, uh, which was a penal colony, for the best way to describe it, probably with a lot of particularly unsavory characters there. Here's Smyrna that we were just talking about. Here's Greece. The lower half of Greece is Achaia. The northern half is Macedonia. Philip of... 
Macedon, father of Alexander the Great, was up here. And then, as we were talking earlier, you have these particular names. Here is Pontus on the southern, southern slope of the Black Sea. Here's Bithynia, Phrygia, Galatia. Ring a bell? What? Book of Galatians, right. Okay, over here is Thessalonica, and we come on around. There are four large cities that begin to emerge predominantly in early ancient church history. They are Rome, Carthage, Alexandria, and Antioch. Notice that Jerusalem is not mentioned in that big group of four. Why do you think that might be? Yeah, you have Judaism, and um, you have Judaism stronghold here. They're increasingly becoming uh, antagonistic and pushing the Christians away. So, um, now... We were talking. We talked a minute ago about about Tarsus here. Why is that important? All right, Paul is from Tarsus. That's where he grew up. His father was a Roman citizen. He inherits Roman citizenship, which gives him freedom to travel within the whole Roman Empire. Now, over here is Nicopolis. Nicopolis is a port city on the Sea of Actium, right there. Nicopolis is mentioned in Titus chapter 3. Paul writes to Titus and says, bring the books and the parchments. I am going to spend the winter in Nicopolis. And you have the Sea of Actium. It's a small body of water right there. And you remember your ancient history about how important that particular body of water was. <laughs> right? Uh, you must have played hooky that day in class. What am I going to? What am I going to do with you people? All right, listen up. I'm getting ready to tell you about one of the hinge points of history. Okay, this is free. This is all right. You're, you ready, Dave? All right. Paul is born here probably about her five, 5 or 6 B.C., probably about the time when Jesus was born. He's born in Tarsus. Now, back your mind up to about 41, 42 B.C. Anybody remember Antony and Cleopatra? Right. For the folks in here with the gray hair that I've got, you probably think Richard Burton and... Uh, you know, Elizabeth Taylor. Don't do that. All right. Now, <clears throat> Antony is part of the second triumvirate of Rome. You say, what's a triumvirate? Okay. A triumvirate are three people sharing leadership. Can you imagine three politically ambitious, ruthless individuals getting along with each other? Not going to happen in the Roman Empire. You've got... You've got Lepidus, you've got Octavian, and you've got Antony that are based over here in Rome. They both, all three have tremendous ambition. They get Lepidus out of the way, leaving Antony and Octavian. Antony takes his legions and marches eastward, conquering all this land as he goes gets to Tarsus and decides to rest there for a little while. Meanwhile, he's met Cleopatra down here in Alexandria. Cleopatra, of course, has had um, involvement, let's say, with Julius Caesar a number of years ago and has a 17-year-old son by him by the name of Caesarion. Cleopatra wants Caesarion to succeed her for the, an empire to the east, she's got wealth, all the gold and wealth of Egypt. Antony is up here with his legions. He's got the army. He's got the power, but he doesn't have enough money. You with me? You bet. All right. You get the picture? What? what? That's right. 
So Antony's up here. He sends word to Cleopatra. Why don't you come up and see me? She says, I think you ought to come down here. So they have a little tiff back and forth for a while. And finally she decides to go. But she takes her time and has a tremendous armada. And she comes, takes her time and gets up here. All right. Those two get together and decide we're going to conquer the world. And what we're got, we've got a little problem, though, with this guy named Octavian, who just happens to be the grandnephew of Julius Caesar. So they say, okay, let's get a bunch of warships together and we'll fight him. Meanwhile, Octavian understands the issue also. They, Antony and Cleopatra put together an armada of 500 warships, some of which weighed, we estimate, at least 100 tons. We're talking not rowboats here, people. We're talking about triple-decked slaves pulling on the oars. All right. Now, meanwhile, over here uh, in Rome, Octavian has amassed his army and his military and has a very expensive sea commander, uh, and he has 250 warships. This armada over here meets this armada right there, at the Sea of Actium, and it's known as the Battle of Actium. Octavian is victorious. Cleopatra and her ships leave that are left. Antony is totally demoralized, leaves and goes after her. They say he was in a state of three days of depression, couldn't speak with the wipeout of, of what happened. He ends up committing suicide down here. <clears throat> Octavian is victorious, and the reason why this is a hinge point of history is because had they succeeded, there would have been no Octavian. Octavian, as probably some of you remember, became Caesar Augustus. Had there been no Caesar Augustus, there would not have been a decree going forth for the whole world to be taxed. And you wouldn't have had Joseph and Mary going to Bethlehem. You would also have had a very Eastern world because this whole area all the way over here would have been involved in Caesarean taking over the empire to the east after the death of his mother Cleopatra. As it turned out, Octavian knew how to take care of things. He murders Octavian. Uh, Octavian uh, murders Caesarion as well. Please keep in mind throughout all of this, most of the emperors of Rome came up through the military ranks. These are bloody people, and they are ruthless. Okay? We'll hear more about that later. So... Battle of Actium right off the coast of Nicopolis. Isn't that neat? All right. Okay. Cool. Yeah, that's yeah. Cool. That's right. All right. So uh, as backing up just a second, here are these places being mentioned by Peter as he speaks. People from these parts of the world all speaking different languages and they are coming from these different areas. Now, let me stop for a minute. Let's take a sip of water. Questions? Yes, Karen. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a, that's a very good. I almost was going to mention that, and I thought maybe I'm the only one here that old. Okay. Um, uh, Charlton, Charl, doubt that slaves all looked as good as Charlton Heston. Okay. But, uh, but yeah, that's the picture. All right. Um, any other questions? Yes. About what? Yes. You've heard the expression, all roads lead to Rome? Okay. That's part of that Pax Romana, or the Roman peace. 
the Romans knew that in order to have control, you needed to be able to quickly move to get there. Now, part for two reasons. One was communication. You'd send riders on horseback to get there. The second reason for building roads is so you can move your legions quickly. Okay, you don't want them plowing through swamps and that kind of thing. We're going to get on the road and we're going. And um, so now Barbara's question, you have various roads. You had the, uh, the Appian Way uh, is one that I can remember and these other roads. Paul, it's even mentioned in Acts, the name or two of, of those roads. But um, I don't know. Um, I can't answer where all they went, but I know they ended up in Rome. Okay, let's move on quickly now. Just for fun, I thought, you know, I'm going to do a Google on some ancient churches and just see what we find. This is a church structure that they say they estimate was probably built around 200 in Megiddo, Israel, and it's possibly the oldest building constructed as a church that ever has been discovered. Now, what do you know about Megiddo? Is that related to the Valley of Megiddo? Exactly. And in the Valley of Megiddo, there's going to be someday what? The Battle of Armageddon or Armageddon. Okay. Uh, let's go on. Here's another one that was, they estimate, from around 229 A.D. in Duros, Syria. Here they have the oldest images of Jesus discovered in the surviving frescoes of the large baptistry. What's a fresco? A painting done on West Plaster. Thank you, Bob. That's right. Now... Tell me what you see. <laughs> All right. What, okay. Kind of looks like a house. These are mud-dried, sun-dried bricks. What else do you see? Uh, kind of looks like a stairs. This is a, a support structure because this piece of the wall without that wood propping it up could get pushed over. So that's just a temporary but it, it looks old, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Look, oh, what's that? I think it's a below ground. Oh, it looks below ground. Yeah, there, it sort of looks like it's built into the side of a hill. All right, come on, folks. You're describing what we all see. What is it that you need to be seeing? Think about it. Okay, we won't play the game. Guess what John's thinking. All right, all right. Okay. This is a church building. Back then, you had people just like you and me that came here to worship. Most likely they were slaves. They came at night. Probably at some point in that early history, they were coming secretly. Some were scared. Some were confident in God. Some were worrying about their children. Some were wondering what was going to happen to them. They were expectant for the future of eternity with the Lord Jesus, their Savior. In other words, they're just like us, right? Aren't they? So when you see these old buildings, think of how long were they there? What was their lives like? Yes, Karen. Well, that, that means that they, that means that they some somebody made a painting of what they thought he looked like, All right? Because they obviously didn't have real uh, pictures at that, at, you know, no no Kodak moments there. Oh yeah, just assume. And and we see images of Jesus all all. Yeah, they they could put it could have put his name on. We see those in the catacombs in Rome, for example. Here's, here's a, uh, a church that is still in use in Armenia from the, from the 300s. This, this is about uh, 10 years before Constantine. It didn't look like that in the beginning. It's been built, added onto, but it's still there. Here's one 
in Greece from 326, whoops, from 326 um, in Perikia. It's known as the church, Eastern Orthodox Church, the Church of a Hundred Doors. If you count them, they say there's a hundred of those doors all over the all over the whole place. I thought this one was interesting. You might like this was built in 327 to 329, and it was by Helena, the mother of the Byzantine Emperor Constantine the Great, and it was just a couple of years after the Council of Nicaea. I looked at that and I thought, you know what? It looks like you could pull up there and go into the CVS pharmacy, right? <laughs> okay, but it's still in use today, considering from way back then. Find that interesting? All right. And this is the last one. This is known as the Cave Church of St. Peter, and this is in Antioch, uh, Turkey the same Antioch that we were looking at. That's about 50 feet deep in there, carved out of the rock in, in there. And uh, I don't think it's in use today, but it's obviously still there and visited. You and I are going to meet people someday in heaven from all of those places, part of our early, early church family. Okay, <clears throat> let's let's move on now. We're discerning. Uh, we want to start with what is Satan up to? What are the institutions that God has implemented for the human race? Marriage, Marriage church, government, family. Okay, good. All right, here we go. We're going to go quick here because I've got stuff to talk about. Uh, so we have family and marriage and these four institutions, family and marriage, civil government, Israel, and the church all illustrate a facet of God's being. Some argue of other institutions. One that I've thought about is called uh, is commerce or business that shows God's care for the environment and the use of the natural environment. I don't know quite what I think about that, but just be aware that some think that there's a fifth one down here. But let's take these four. We have family and marriage that talk about reflect God's unity and relationship, civil government, judgment and law, Israel, election and sovereignty, and the church, election and grace. Now, what do we think Satan thinks about God's institutions. Okay? He wants to destroy all of God's works. Jesus himself said that the gates of hell, meaning Satan, will not prevail against it, Matthew 16. Two things we can take away from that. The first is, Satan is not going to win. The second thing we take away is, the church is going to be attacked. And we see that down through history. We can snoops. We uh, can stand against the schemes of Satan. We get the word scheme from the Greek word schemata. Very, very, very similar. Practically a transliteration. Satan has schemes to destroy us. And he goes on to say in Corinthians, we're not to be outwitted by Satan. So Satan's a liar and a destroyer from Revelation chapter 9. So here comes something new. The Old Testament uh, prophets did not see the church as they looked forward into the future. Christ comes. He's crucified, resurrected. Peter preaches. The church is launched. And not very long after it's launched, we start having problems. And those problems are coming from right here, our enemy. And so what kinds of problems are we going to have? We're going to have two kinds of problems. We've got persecution coming on the outside, from the outside. And we have theological heresies starting on the inside. And as any military commander will tell you, 
we really would not prefer to have war on two fronts, Ron. So, notice and keep in mind that Christianity has always faced internal and external threats throughout its history. Right down to CBC in Richardson, Texas. Okay? We were told and warned and reminded, keep the unity, be alert for error, let love abound. Those are kinds of watchwords for us. And we need to be on guard against the subtleties of Satan's double-barreled attack. So uh, let, um, let me just stop there now for a second and let you think about that. Thoughts? The Lord Jesus Christ himself said Satan came to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's right. Yes. And he is bent on destroying those institutions, our marriages, our church, our government, uh, and Israel. And don't we see all four of those under attack today? Yeah, very real, isn't it? Okay, moving on. Now, let's put yourself, if anything, I want to kind of transport you back into time put you back here in this early church period, say 60, 70, 100 A.D., you're probably a slave or part of the lower class. Remember, too, in the Roman hierarchy of things, there was virtually no middle class. I said last week that the Roman Empire was a war machine built on slavery. Um, and we'll do, talk some more about that. So here we are. Let's say we're in the lower class, or maybe maybe we've inherited a little money, so we're kind of unusual in what we might call the lower middle class. We've got some kind of business. We're believers, and we start getting this persecution. Why is that? Any thoughts before we plunge along? Why would you be getting persecuted other than it's being prompted or promulgated, fueled by Satan? But from you're right, you're different. Good. And Bob, superstitions. Absolutely. Both of those are right. Barbara mentioned the name of Jesus. You know, what's that all about? OK, so I'm going to give you four reasons for persecution. Number one is political. At the beginning, Christianity was considered part of Judaism. The Romans had kind of thrown up their hands in trying to deal with the Jews. They would conquer lands and then they would conscript the young men into the army. So places that you saw up there, Phrygia and Pontus and Bithynia and uh, Mesopotamia, they come in there, you, 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 and you, come here, you're drafted, all right? I don't want to be drafted, shut up, just get in line. And and that would be the end of that, and off you, you'd go to boot camp and getting uh, trained to be a Roman soldier. The Jews were so difficult and stubborn, they said, we're not even going to try to draft them, just kind of leave them alone, try to keep a lid on there. In 66 A.D., the Roman Empire, the Roman authorities sent the general Pompey to put down one of the uh, uprisings that the Jews had. And then we'll get to others in a minute. So Christianity was kind of under this umbrella of, of Judaism and for a while. But when we start talking about persecution, let's stop for just a second when when did persecution first start for the church? Say it again. Under the Jews in Jerusalem. So remember, there was an uprising uh, and there was persecution from the Jewish authorities of the Christians and it dispersed the Christians. I think it's Acts chapter 8, but check me out on that. 
And so the believers, with the exception of the disciples, many of them left town and dispersed to those areas. So persecution first began with the Jews. And then after the resurrection, Acts tells us that many of the priests and the Pharisees became believers. But from a human government standpoint, persecution began with um, a political kind of reason because pretty soon the Jews had communicated to Rome that Christians are different from us and they're bad. That then became where Christianity became religio illicita, which is, sort of, of course, Latin for an illegal religion. The Roman leaders considered the Roman state to be the highest good. They worshipped the state. Now, you could be polytheistic. You could worship other gods. But as long as you affirm that Caesar was Lord or God, they're fine. You can do whatever you want to do. But that, that um, belief of worshiping of the state was unifying. But Christians were viewed suspiciously because they always keep talking about this other kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus or the kingdom of the Lord. And that began to sound what? Competition. Rebellion, disloyalty, breeds suspicion. Dave a minute ago said, oh, they're different than us. And when people are different, you know, you kind of wonder. So what happens is Christians held their meetings at night secretly, and this fueled further suspicion. And as the empire progressed, it got to the point, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, under the emperor Decius, he decreed a law throughout the empire that everyone had to come to the temple at, or come to a, an altar at least once a year and sprinkle a little pinch of incense before a, before a statue or a bust of the emperor and say, the emperor's Lord, turn around, go home. You could do that. Everything's fine. You can go home, be whatever you want to be. But if you did that, you're in good shape. So, of course, Christians couldn't do that. And that began to foment uh, suspicion. Why would, they, why would Christians be holding meetings at night? Had to work during the day. Many of them were slaves and didn't have a choice of anything but to meet in the evening. Okay, so the first reason for persecution was political. Everybody get the picture on that? All right, second one is religious. The first thing that came along was Christians were considered as atheists. Does that sound contradictory? Why would they be called that? Well, they were not worshiping a whole bunch of gods. They were not atheists. They weren't, they weren't worshiping the Roman gods. So if you're not worshiping our gods, then you must be, right, an atheist. All right, keep moving along. Roman religion, like most of mankind's religion, is external and mechanical. They had altars and idols and processional events and very external rites and practices, which everybody can see. But as we know, much of what we do as believers is internal and spiritual with little visibility. And to people who were used to seeing activity and external things, if they see you praying, standing, or kneeling with your eyes closed, that must be something bad. Sense that? Makes sense? Okay. All right. So we had secrecy of meetings that brought moral criticism and lies. What is Satan's scheme here? Distortion? Lies? He had uh, the kiss of peace. Well, Paul would say, you know, greet the brothers with a holy kiss. To an unsaved pagan, that must be code for something uglier, right? Okay. 
And you had distortions that, you know, Christians offer sacrifices of infants. Where do you think they could have possibly gotten that idea? Abraham and Isaac, right? All right. Uh, Incest, you know, calling each other brother and sister. All of this dealt with suspicion and innuendo, lies and distortions. And don't overlook that there was superstition. And I think uh, Bob or Becca may have said it, uh, demonic activity uh, among the Romans. Very real things there. All right. That's the second reason for persecution. Political, religious, moving on with social. Romans were very class conscious, especially the political leaders. They felt that they were good and better and being part of the Roman aristocracy. We are the absolute rulers of the world. Work is not something that we should do. That's what slaves are for. We are we and they are them. And if we've conquered them, then obviously we are better than them. So Christianity appeared to the lower classes and slaves, which was most of the empire. And there's, you know, you think about it for a minute. You know, when you think about a life hereafter being rewarded for your faith for eternity with God, that was appealing. You know, most people were dead in their 40s here. Christianity believed in the equality of all mankind. That would have been anathema to Roman aristocracy. Are you kidding me? I'm equal and they're equal with me? No way. So Christians were viewed as nonconformists. They separated themselves from pagan gatherings that were held at temples and theaters and games. Remember, as the Roman Empire moved along, those games became uglier and uglier to the point where Christians would not go. The purity of their lives and their mores was a cultural rebuke. And Christians began to be perceived to be a danger in society and possibly incite the masses to revolt. Back about uh, 50 or 60 B.C., you had Spartacus, who was a gladiator and led an uprising of thousands of slaves to fight the Roman legions and, in fact, defeated on a couple of occasions some of the major legions. And so just imagine, okay, you're a wealthy Roman. You've got a million sesterces in your piggy bank. And you've got 50 or 100 or 500 slaves out there. When you go to sleep at night, is there any real guarantee you're going to wake up tomorrow? If they get loose? Yeah. So... We aren't, we don't, we're not going to tolerate anybody coming along and shaking the status quo here. So un, understand, th- this is serious. Our way of life's being threatened. And when you're on top, you worry about staying on top, which is what was happening here socially. So they were, Christians were perceived as being a danger in society with these heretical ideas. Does that make sense? Make sense? Okay. And the Roman historian Tacitus is quoting that these Christians seem to have a hatred for the human race. Why would he, how would he get to that conclusion? (laughs) Well, right. You know, this is our way of life. This is the way we live and you're contradicting it. How can you, how can you be against this? Okay. So, uh, so that's the third reason for persecution. And then finally, number four is economic. Didn't you know that sooner or later we're going to get to the money? Okay. All right. Remember, remember in Acts chapter 19 when Paul had an uproar, caused an uproar in Ephesus from the idol makers union? Okay. You're threatening our way of life. 
And so what happens is there's always vested interest in things staying the way they are. That's as true then as today. All right? So what's involved here? You've got fortune tellers. Remember, these are very superstitious people. The Roman army would always have sacrifices before it went to battle. They'd look at which, what the clouds were doing. They were looking at which way the birds were flying, what color the birds were. If they were blackbirds that were flying south, mm, could be bad, bad omen. They sacrifice a sheep or some other kind of animal. They're looking at the internals and thinking, well, mm, you know, that, that, that looks a little unusual. I don't think we ought to go to war today, General. Okay, we'll wait till tomorrow. Yeah, Ides of March, okay, right, right, yeah, right, with Julius Caesar going on his way to the forum, right. So uh, so you have fortune tellers and priests and idol makers and painters and shrine architects and sculptors. They'd be all over against anything like this Christianity that's otherworldly, that doesn't have uh, idols or some tangible thing for for them to be making. And remember, the money people are always closely aligned with the powerful people, aren't they? Okay. And then there was a work ethic where Paul says, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. This is heretical to Roman authorities. What are you talking about? I'm not working. You know, some, of these, some of these emperors, Nero and others, would spend a, what, the equivalent of a million or two million dollars on a party that lasts a week or two. I mean, it just, just boggles your mind of, of what they were doing. And so work, that's, that's for my slaves to do. And then around 250 A.D., persecution ran high. And it's, this was interesting. I wanted to pass this along to you. Around 250 A.D., there was the, what was known as the Plague of Cyprian. This was a plague, and we don't know really quite what caused it, but thousands of people were dying across the entire Roman Empire. It's reported at the height of this that 5,000 people a day were dying in Rome. Now, 5,000 of anything is a lot. But imagine 5,000 bodies, okay? This wasn't due to the persecution. This is just a plague. And again, we don't know quite what caused it. But the timing was interesting because for the Romans, they viewed the founding of Rome at about 1,000 years at that point. And so... For those of us in this room, do you remember the Y2K thing? All right. And all the stuff surrounding and nervousness. Becky and I have know a family that just Christian, well-meaning, sincere. were just absolutely convinced that the world was going to end. And they moved out of the Dallas area to in the middle of nowhere in Tennessee. Because, you know, the... The clocks are going to stop. The planes are going to fall. I mean, for them. But point being, this, this uh, period was, again, about the time of, of the millennium for the founding of Rome. People get superstitious about it. There was the forsaking of all the old Roman gods. Those things all coupled together from an economic standpoint caused further isolation and persecution of, of the Christians. Make sense? All right. Remember I mentioned in the map that we were looking at at the beginning, and by the way, that was kind of a bland map. I, I'll be the first to admit to you, but it was the only map I could find that had as many of those different places on it that's talked about. But you remember Carthage that was over here uh, on North Africa? That, was, that became one of the seats of Western theologians. And Tertullian here was from Carthage. And he made the statement that has rung down through history that the blood of the martyrs is the seat of the church. Everybody heard that before? 
Okay, well, Tertullian's the one that said it. Let's take a look at this timeline real quickly. We have Jesus being born here about 6 or 5 B.C. We're not quite sure. We have the crucifixion around 33, 34. And then you have the church uh, beginning. And by about 100 A.D., the way and Judaism had pretty well split. And you have Judaism going on and then Christianity continuing. Now, uh, right here, uh, you have the New Testament coming together over a period of these years from about 44 to 95. 44 AD is about 10 years or so after the resurrection. Pretty quick. And that was a writing of Paul. We're not sure if it was Galatians that was the first or maybe First Thessalonians. We're not, we're not quite sure. There's good arguments both ways on that. What was the last book that was written in the New Testament? Revelation by John the Apostle on uh, Patmos Island. Remember, right outside of Ephesus there. All right. So that, so you have the New Testament coming together right here. All right. Now, let's look up here. These are obviously some familiar names. Nero, Domitian, uh, Marcus Aurelius, Decius, Valerian, uh, Diocletian, and Galerius. Okay. Put those, put those little red bombs up there to indicate persecution. All right. Now, look at those, what are those, uh, seven emperors. What do you notice about the, the sequence of that? Okay. As this is progressing, the persecution starts getting closer together, right? For instance, you have Nero over here. He reigned from 54 to 68. Both Peter and Paul are martyred in Rome under Nero. Peter was crucified, tradition says, upside down. Paul was beheaded. Domitian comes next. Um, how are we doing? Oh, we're running out of time. Uh, let, me, let me skip to down here for just a second. You have the Edict of Milan down here. This is Milan, Italy in 313. This is where Constantine allows Christianity to be legal. He does not make Christianity the religion of the empire. That doesn't take place until much later in 387. But let's take some of these guys right here for just a minute. Who is Domitian? Don't say emperor because... Right, right. Okay. He was the first non-Caesar. Okay. All right. All right. Let me me give you a little more uh, quick history here. All right. We have down here the temples destroyed in 70 A.D., temple in in Jerusalem, by Titus. All right, footnote on that. Rome sent Vespasian with several legions to Jerusalem or, or to Israel to put down one of these uprisings. He gets there about a year, 18 months ahead of time. He happens to have two sons in a commanding role in his army. One of them is named Titus. The other is Domitian. Vespasian is there on the battlefield. Titus and Domitian, they have about 40,000 soldiers. The, uh, the temple uh, people, Israel, the Jews, are, have about 24,000. This is not going to be a good day. Nero commits suicide. There's a period of about a year where four emperors come and go really quickly. They either kill themselves or get murdered. Things are in a turmoil back home in Rome. Vespasian's here and hearing about all this. His legions and his other legions in Egypt say, we think you ought to be emperor. He takes the advice and goes back home. That goes home to Rome. While he's there, And as he's leaving, he says to Titus, take over here and and kind of clean up this mess, will you? And Titus says, Dad, I can handle that. He's only 27 years old. 
All right. So Titus destroys the temple area, fulfilling Jesus' prophecy that not one stone would be left on another. Because the rumor was that to, among the Roman troops to, uh, from the Jews was that there were gold rods between the stones. So they said, hey, I pushed these stones over, and if there's any gold in there, it's mine. So there was an added impetus to do that. So Titus goes back home victorious. Josephus says that 97,000 Jews were taken to Rome as slaves. Many of them were undoubtedly believers. And someday you and I are going to meet them in heaven. Now, Vespasian gets back home, is put in place as emperor, and begins building the Flavian Amphitheater. Anybody know what that is? That's right. He starts what we know of today as the Colosseum. Remember, the Roman Empire was a war machine built on slavery. Those slaves were sold into slavery. This was common practice. This was like buying and selling used cars. Common. From the sale of those slaves was the financing for the Colosseum. Think about that. Titus is, uh, Vespasian reigns for 10 years. Titus, uh, excuse me, Vespasian dies. Titus assumes emperorship. He lives for about two and a half years and kind of dies unexpectedly. And his brother Domitian takes over. Domitian is the younger brother that you kind of would like to have kept in the closet. All right. He is sadistic. He like, he enjoys nothing more than sitting for hours capturing horseflies and torturing them with needles and pins. This is true. I didn't make this up. You can't make this stuff up. All right. He also enjoys watching women gladiators fight dwarfs. Something, something, going, something going on there. So Domitian is here from 81, 81 to 96. And he is the first emperor to declare, I am God. And now we really have emperor worship taking off in the empire. Domitian it go, dies at 96. Uh, there's a period of relative quiet, little sporadic persecution here and there. Now we get to Marcus Aurelius. Marcus, um, Marcus was a skeptic, and he became suspicious of Christianity and did something, again, very clever that you could sense was satanic as well. And that was, we're not going to have mass pogroms of, of these Christians, but if anybody turns any of the Christians into the authorities, they can get to keep the Christians' property. Later in Tsarist Russia, you had the same thing all over again. All right. And that has happened down through history as well. That happened under uh, Marcus Aurelius. And remember the map? You had Carthage over here and Alexandria down here and, and Rome and one other, oh, Corinth. Those became some areas of intense persecution. But again, there's two extremes to avoid in your thinking about this period of persecution. The church, to say that the church was constantly persecuted is not correct. And to say at the other end of the extreme that churches and Christianity had just a little persecution once in a while, no big thing. Both of those extremes are entirely incorrect. When it happened, it was intense. Decius comes along and here's the guy. He, remember, look at the period here when he reigned. 
only a couple of years, from 249 to 251. Remember me talking about the Cyprian plague a minute ago that happened around 250? Decius comes along, and the, and the empire has all of this polytheistic worship as well as Christianity. We've got plagues. The Roman legions have suffered some defeats. The empire is falling down. And so he, like so many people, when the crisis comes, says, we have to return to the way it used to be. And so he says, he decrees that every uh, person in the empire must worship an image of Caesar and say that he is God. This is big time here. And what happens then is that the, remember, there's no police. You have the army. And the army goes from city to city, from street to street, house to house, and individually pulling people out and saying, do you have a certificate of sacrifice? And you say, what's that? Well, here is one. This is a certificate of sacrifice that's in the Manchester, uh, city of Manchester in England, and it's called a libellus. And you can barely make it out. Sorry, I couldn't make it clear, but there's writing on there. This is a piece of papyrus, remember, made, made from papyrus reeds, okay? And they write on here. And it says, it has always been my practice to sacrifice to the gods. Now in your presence and in accord with the command from Decius, I have sacrificed, I have poured a libation, and I have tasted the offering. I beg you to certify this statement. I, Aurelia Demos, have presented this declaration. I, Aurelius Irenaeus, her husband, have written for her since she is illiterate. And I, Aurelius Sabinus, the commissioner, saw you sacrificing. Friends, we are looking at a document that's almost 2,000 years old of government mandating religion. And if you did not have one of those, you were marched to the authorities and made to stand and to sacrifice. And if you didn't, the alternative was persecution of one kind or another. Some people were led off, not let off, but led off, and some of the authorities would be lenient. Even though the individual confessed Jesus as Lord, they would allow them to live. Those folks were called confessors. Others were led off, and if they would not sacrifice and said that Jesus was Lord, they were persecuted in all kinds of ways. Thrown to wild animals, uh, beheaded, dragged through the streets, nails driven through their bodies, all kinds of horrendous things were done if you did not have a libellus. And that took place during the time of Decius. And it, and it came on Valerian, Diocletian, and these were others. Um, Diocletian began what's known as the Great Persecution, and this was one of the final attempts by the Roman Empire to wipe out Christianity. Christian worship was prohibited. Churches, books, and scrolls were destroyed. Church leaders were imprisoned and tortured. Christians were deprived of public office and all civil rights. And all Christians were ordered to offer sacrifice to the pagan gods. In the time of Valerian, as well as Diocletian, if you were a Christian and you had any kind of position in the government or military, you were demoted, you were taken and sold into slavery. Learn from history. Governments do exactly whatever it takes 
to stay in power. It doesn't matter what the populace thinks if the power is strong enough arrayed against them. Governments do whatever is necessary to stay in power. Finally, under Galerius, he gave up. He had persecuted at the beginning, but he finally gave up. And then Constantine took over and, as I said, allowed for the legalization of Christianity. Okay, there's a theology of martyrdom, but we will stop at that that point. So, what do you think? That's right. Indeed. Bob? Uh, early Constantine's mother, Helen. Right. Was she a Christian before he was emperor? Yes. Yes, she was. Helen, Bob was asking you, what about uh, Helena, the mother of Constantine? Yes, she was. Please understand that at this early point in, in the history of the church, there are no seminaries. We don't, at this point, we don't even have a, a complete New Testament. We're not even sure which writings are inspired and which ones aren't. You have people in the church who have genuinely believed in Jesus as their Savior, but they've got a whole lot of what we would today would call baggage. All right? Baggage from other cults and other things that they'd been involved in, and they kind of drag this into Christianity too, and you, you know, you would. And, and people weren't as mobile then. I mean, you would grow up and stay in the same area so people would know you. And then, you know, they would get together in small groups at church and people would become known for what they believed in. And then somebody would come from far away, like Carthage, and they would have a different perspective. Oh, well, that doesn't—that isn't what we believe, and well, that isn't what we believe, and so there was this kind of growing crisis about what should we believe, and that's what's coming next week, all right? So, but other questions, comments? You mean the same Yeah, right. Yeah, very. You know, but uh, ha- have a. You know, think about it. We we have Polycarp being burned, and and there's hundreds of other people that and thousands that lost their lives in horrific ways, and we're going to be in heaven someday with them. And you know, you walk up and you say, "Hi, I'm John," and you know, they say, "I'm Livia," and you know, "Well, how are you?" You know, tell me about your life. Well, I lived in 150 A.D. and I was a slave, and they dragged me out of the house, and I got murdered and and she'll say and, and you know she's i got murdered for my faith and she says tell me about your life and i said well my brother raised an eyebrow at thanksgiving when i said we ought to take a prayer <laughs> you know doesn't, doesn't quite cut it does it so you understand i'm not i'm not being humorous about what happened to thousands of our early brothers and sisters. But come on, folks, let's buck up a little bit with being forthright about our witness. You know, we've got a great country where we can be free to talk about. These people had no idea of something like that. Okay. All right. Paul's saying it's time to quit. All right. Here are handouts for to, of tonight's if you would like those. So if you, you can have two, two sets, one from last week and one from this week. And thank you all for coming and thank you for your kind attention.